This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority for Designated Investment Business and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. Hi, I'm Nick Searle, a member of the Zeus Equity Sales Team and host of A Different Perspective. Here we interview interesting characters from the world of business and finance and uncover a different perspective. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or contact me at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. We're recording this on Tuesday, the 5th of July with Albert Ellis. Albert is CEO of AIM Listed Specialist Recruitment Business Staffline, ticker STAF. A very opportune time to be speaking with Albert with the current macro backdrop of full employment, wage inflation and increased industrial action. Albert has had a very varied and interesting career from four years as a professional musician in the Light Horse Regimental Band in South Africa, working in the South African mining industry, selling hairstyling products for three years to then become an accountant uh, with a move into recruitment with Hayes, Harvey Nash and now CEO of Staffline. Albert, welcome. That's a very interesting journey to become a CEO of an AIM-listed company. Uh, fancy walking us through it? Yeah, sure, Nick. Um, I mean, it seems odd uh, that I wanted to be a musician and I ended up in business, but uh, they, are, they are sort of two careers that are vaguely linked in that, um, you know, I was a freelance musician as well as playing in the military band. Um, I was always attracted to the British sort of pomp and ceremony. Um, and the Light Horse Regimental Band was associated with the, um, the the Royal Marines here, the Band of the Royal Marines here in the UK. So I always watched it on television back in South Africa and wanted to be, you know, part of that. Um, but I was actually a freelance musician for a number of years, ever since I was, you know, since I was 14. Um, and it was at that time, you know, once I'd finished with the band, I did four years, it was, you know, fixed term contract, that I really wanted to be you know, in business, I wanted to be an entrepreneur, I wanted to do things and, you know, I wanted to make money. Um, and so that's how the, the, the sort of link to, 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 to going into business emerged. And then, and then from, from the band to, to mining, I mean, what, what was the, the move then? Um, I, I met my wife who was English, um, she was traveling actually, and uh, she was, uh, we met in Johannesburg just uh, by chance, and after we were married and we settled down, um, we we started a hairdressing salon together, and we called it uh, Ellison Company, with a couple of uh, an, a British couple as well who were also involved, also with the name of Ellis. So that that was my first foray into business, and I absolutely loved it, and I loved the numbers. Um, and I very quickly uh, realized that I needed to have a much better financial background, a more sophisticated background than just being a musician. Um, so that was the link there that, um, that, that got me to looking at um, going back to university and formally training as a chartered accountant. And then that was at RSM, was it? I joined RSM, that's right, to do my, um, my, my articles and my basic training. Um, I went to Wits University, which is uh, sort of the, you know, that you can't compare South African universities with British universities. You have the best universities in the world here. But Wits University was the equivalent of a sort of red brick, or is an equivalent yeah. red brick university. And I loved it there too. Um, I qualified with RSM and then I couldn't wait to come to the UK and go straight into commerce. You know, I wasn't going to be a partner in an accounting 
him. I, I, my mentor was my uncle, who was um, an entrepreneur. He was taken into social services at uh, five years old. Can you believe that? Yeah. Um, and, and put in an orphanage. Um, and he fought his way back, qualifying as a chartered accountant, working his way up and became you know, a very successful entrepreneur. And he always said to me, if you've, been, if you've done that sort of training and you go into business, you'll always be a little bit ahead of the rest of the crowd because yeah. you'll understand the numbers and that's the most important thing. And then the leap from accountancy to, to recruitment? Well, with that sort of fire in my belly in terms of the business, I joined Hayes, a very entrepreneurial business. Ronnie Frost was the chairman. Yeah. He was the founder what, what, of the what business. Year was, what year that was that? It was uh, 93. So, yeah. you know, actually, Hayes Recruitment was a small division of a large logistics business run by, you know, Sir Ronnie Frost, who was an entrepreneur. Um, he, he owned 5% of the company. He was the chairman. And I was inspired by his entrepreneurial ownership leadership style yeah and um so but of course i joined the recruitment division at that time not making any money terrible recession as you remember probably or some of you 1989 to 93 negative equity you yeah. know bounced out the er the yeah. the, the erm etc it was a horrendous time for recruitment but i first saw the incredible opportunity when the cycle is at the bottom when you're right at the bottom and everybody's given up hope recruitment is ready to grow and that's you know that that's what started me um following the recruitment sector and i was i've been a fan ever since so how many years did you do at hayes oh i did uh, i left there at 98 so i must have done five years i did a couple of years in recruitment i thought at the time it was a bit boring so i went yeah. into logistics um good 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 move today because uh, most of our customers at Starfline are logistics businesses so um, I do have some empathy for their challenges but wow logistics was hard <laughs> um, and I miss the old recruiters I miss the people uh, recruit recruitment businesses are people businesses they're fantastic and then from from Hayes was it straight to Harvey Nash yes I was we, we tried to buy Harvey Nash um, when I was at Hayes and we offered a paltry amount of money. I, can't, I mean, if I, if I said a number, it's probably wrong because my memory w won't be able to be that accurate. But we gave them an offer and they, uh, the founders, three great characters, uh, turned it down. Um, was it was it was it listed then? No, no, it is a yeah. private company, um, and and of course, you know, with all the arrogance of a FTSE 100 acquisition team, uh, I, I think we sort of were quite you know quite taken aback that they would they would deign to draw to to turn down our offer, and um, anyway, they listed subsequently, yeah. um, and it grew and it was a fantastic success until of course the downturn uh, led by September 11 we had quite a substantial US presence at that time but yes they they, they I think they they've laughed all the way to the bank since and um, uh, they headhunted me then um, into Harvey Nash or certainly the management team in the FD there headhunted me into Harvey Nash after that and then what was your sort of trajectory at Harvey Nash well I I, I was the uh, the CFO for a number of years a couple of years um, and then the you know there an opening up an opening uh, opened up with the CEO, and um, the chairman asked me if I would consider it, and I said to him I'd give him twenty four hours. Uh, I'd, I'd think about it for twenty four hours. I knew that it was a big jump. It was what I wanted to do, you know. Finally, in the driving seat in business, um, but I knew that also I had to not look back. You know, there was no possibility if I made the decision of looking back and saying well maybe I shouldn't be a CEO I had to be 150% committed um, 
And I felt so excited about it. So I came back and I said I'd do the do the job. I mean, we were in not great times. We'd just done a rights issue. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we'd actually raised just enough, but not too much. Yeah. And, you know, then we had Europe was going through some tough times uh, as, as an econ- you know, as a broader economic geography. And actually, I learned then my first lesson in the city. When you raise money, raise a bit more than yeah. you think you need because yeah. the world doesn't go in a straight line. That's for sure. It's not a spreadsheet. Yeah. And um, so we, we raised just enough that got us through, but, but um, there were some tough times in those early years and I learned a lot during that time. And uh, so, yes, I was uh, CEO of Venture for 15 years. And then uh, obviously it was sold, but I mean, how did you, how did you drive the business to, to achieve that result? Well, the, 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 the early years were tough because we were small. We'd been devastated by the dot-com boom yep. and then downturn. You know, I don't like calling it a bust because, gosh, has, 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 has Amazon gone bust? Exactly. <laughs> has Google exactly. gone bust? Yeah. I mean, really, um, it was a sort of accelerated boom. Um, expectation got ahead of themselves and, 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 there was, and, and you know, we had the downturn. But September 11 really was the challenge yeah. that we faced, that all businesses really faced. Was that because of some US exposure and therefore just yes. a downturn in, in the whole idea of recruitment and the economy and that's why ultimately it was tough or anything else? Yes, and w- what I learned then, and I didn't know it was a well-established principle and m- until a bit later, um, was the margin of safety. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I learned that very quickly on the job. W- would have liked that to have been a lesson in my in my curriculum at Fitz University, but unfortunately, universities don't teach people about the real world. Um, so, margin of safety—you've got to have a margin of safety in life and in business and and in all of in all things. Um, so, I learned that very quickly, and and unfortunately, you know, when when the business expanded in the U.S. as I joined, um, you know, it was all perfectly priced. Debt, debt yeah. was at Debt was relatively easy. Um, businesses were booming. There was hyper growth. This was the new term in the, on the West Coast, and nobody planned for any other eventuality than uh, that 100% successful outturn. So then, obviously, Harvey Nash was, was sold successfully, and then some time in the garden on the beach. Well, yes. Uh, I mean, you know, Harvey Nash, we, we we sold it along with D-Bay. D-Bay took ownership, but we were in, you know, we recommended it yeah. in 2018, I believe it was. Um, and, you know, the business had, had had a tremendous 20 years on the markets and the share price was at an all-time high. Yeah. Um, how we turned it into a successful business was we we did the long term. We, we focused on long term. We did bolt-on acquisitions. We did organic growth, you know. If there's anything I've learned from someone like Steve Ingham, and I'd just like to pay tribute to, to Steve having been at the helm of, of Page Group for mm-hmm. much of the time yeah. I've been at the helm of Harvey Nation, we've enjoyed a good relationship. Organic growth is absolutely, um, is absolutely valuable. Yeah. But, you know, we pursued a bolt-on acquisition strategy as well, and then we, we paid healthy dividends. We just committed to increasing the dividends. Um, once you've committed to that, um, I think we, we, we increased them by... Double digit, uh, single digits every year, starting with double digits, and then over the years the business grows. You the, the 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 cash flows come in, and you pay it out, and you become a popular stock. You make it sound easy. <laughs> and then uh, obviously now at Starfline, and uh, what sort of what attracts you to Starfline to sort of dust the boots off and put them back on again? Yeah, so we, we I left Harvey Nash in in the hands of the next generation of leaders. Um, fantastic team there. 
Um, and I was looking around, thinking about life in, in general, as you do after that. Um, and, and Starfline, it was actually uh, the, the, the major shareholders um, in Starfline at that time, HRNet Group, who I had known from Harvey Nash, who I knew were invested in Starfline. And I was quite sort of, um, I was quite thoughtful about wondering how, how their journey had been in terms of uh, when they first invested in the business. And a couple of conversations, as they do, happen in the city. And uh, I was thinking about a plural career. I wanted to do, yep. you know, I wanted to be uh, non-exec. Um, and uh, an opening w- arose at Starfline, and I joined the business um, as, a, as, as the audit chairman and as a non-executive. And a very different business. Well, they're in recruitment, a very different business to Harvey Nash. Yes. Um, different in that it w- it's more like outsourcing. Yeah. Um, the training business is completely different. Um, really, really interesting business, People Plus. The recruitment side, the majority of it, it's, it's more like outsourcing. It's long-term contracts um, with, with large, you know, FTSE, FTSE, you know, food groups and, 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 and automotive businesses. Um, and, and, it's, and it's volume. It's enormous. It's scale across the UK, in Scotland, in England, and in, and in Ireland is quite astonishing. And so slightly different from IT recruitment, which is very niche. Yeah. So I was going from niche to generalist. But we have also a very strong white-collar offering, um, a very fast-growing one. And you know, I've introduced, uh, we're along with Daniel, my CFO, who's ex-Robert Walters, the, the allure and the attractions of permanent recruitment. And that's going really, really well. So you know, it's a great mix. And I've come to really, really regard the blue-collar sector as an, a vital and important sector more than just a business um it's a business that actually keeps the economy going if, if you buy any 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 food from from a major oh. retailer or you buy clothes from any of the large retailers or indeed if you just order online it's likely that a staff line employee will have either driven the lorry that carried the parcel or indeed actually in the warehouse packed those goods and so we're an important lifeline. Um, life, we're the lifeblood of the economy. So, how many staff line connected employees would be would be working in the UK at one time? Do you know? Yeah. So we have about you know thirty thousand um, on average, but that can rise to about forty thousand during peak. So peak would be Christmas. Um, a good Christmas uh, is a very we, we had a, th- this country had a very poor Christmas yep. last year with Omicron. Obviously, you remember the cancellations yep. once. Um, uh, once the Omicron virus spread, um, so cancellations and what have you. So Christmas was cancelled effectively. I'm, I'm very, very hopeful this year is going to be a big Christmas. We also celebrate World Cups and Euros and all of those great, um, those great sort of sporting events, uh, you know, like we're having at the moment with the summer, summer sport. Um, that's all good for, you know, consumers and for food and distribution. So Starfline. Um, we, we, we will, we will, we will put on two or three, four, five thousand temps just during those periods. And then, how does the move to permanent work within within the umbrella of Staffline? Yes, uh, and th- this is a fascinating question because why perm? First of all, the previous management, d- you know, did not see permanent as a part of their strategy, and and it's fair to say that um, you know it's quite challenging in a temp environment in blue collar to think about perm as a sort of critical strategy. However, because of the labor shortage, customers are now wanting to lock in people they would generally yeah. have regarded as temporary before. And a lot of them are wanting to hire these individuals onto their own payrolls. 
Um, so, so of course, we, we've developed a, a direct hire model, a permanent model. Uh, we also have um, in, a, a, quite a substantial engineering business, which is booming at the moment, um, around uh, you know aerospace and, and all of the stuff that's happening in automotive electric electric motors uh, called Omega, and that's pure you know pure perm. Contract, yes, but mainly perm, all engineering and white collar. And in, in, in Ireland, it's mostly white collar. And on that temp side, um, is it or contract side, is it difficult to find people? I mean, we sit, we sit within sort of full employment, you know, inflation, post-Brexit. I mean, we, we seem to you know, have a lot of people in, in the workforce. Are you able to source the people you need? Uh, broadly, by and large. I mean, our fulfillment figures on the blue-collar side are over 90 percent you know the you know I don't, I don't want to quote an exact figure because you know but but it's over 90 percent so but the challenge is we're not filling the last 10 percent and as you know um the last 10 percent are really important so that that we we could be a lot, lot larger and be generating more revenues and profits yeah. if we could um fulfill the last 10 percent and it's and it's that challenge that we're, we're, we're picking up with our customers in terms of the innovation, uh, in terms of our strong relationships and how we can help them. There is so much that's feeding into it. It's not just Brexit. Brexit sort of makes the headlines, mm-hmm. you know, on the news every morning as a contributory factor. But actually, it's also about um, people have been affected by COVID. So there's people have left the workforce, yeah. as you well know. Um, th- they've been affected by all kinds of things, um, not least of all the, the, the problems with childcare, etc. So the, 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 the sort of candidates we'd normally get in for shifts or to complement workforces, many of them are actually not active at the moment. And we're trying to bring them back in, particularly with the aviation sector. You know, we, we're looking at, um, we're supporting some of the big players in the aviation sector, bringing those people that used to work in Heathrow and Manchester and Gatwick back into the, into the workforce. So it's, 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 a, it's a long-term slog. Um, a good example is the HGV drivers. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, was the, yep. there were lots of opinions last year, including um, poor washing facilities at, at um, fuel stations and motorways. Actually, it was about pay, and it was about the fact that um, the DVLA had uh, had sort of ceased to function uh, in terms of p- passing people yes. with tests. Yeah. And we just had an adverse churn. People were leaving, drivers were leaving the industry because they're of an age that they, that they make those sorts of decisions, and we were not getting... Um, new new blood into the industry, and that was simply the maths of it. Uh, you can make it as clever as you like, but that's the maths. And since actually the DVLA have actually opened up and and are actually have introduced really good measures for 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 getting people qualified again, um, that that's eased. And customers have also done a fantastic job in terms of you know changing their strategies. Um, not so reliant on trunks in some of mm-hmm. our cases, the cases that I'm aware of, but looking looking at sort of more medium sized hard bodies and therefore different categories of drivers. So customers will flex. Markets Markets are the, always the best catalyst for change. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then a medium-term vision for Starfline? I mean, obviously, I don't want any financial uh, projections, but you know, where would you see, what would the shape of the business look like in, in three to five years' time? We're on a, a real growth strategy now, so we're investing in the business. Um, now that the, the, we believe the storm has passed. Yes, we have the cost of living crisis and inflation and all of the sort of what I would call fiscal challenges. Mm -hmm. But the COVID storm has generally passed. You know, we've we, we've obviously experiencing a wave at the moment, but basically it's passed. So we're, we're looking at our growth prospects and we do see more growth in market share, particularly as competitors are weaker, um, particularly in the, pro, in the, in the non-listed sector. So, I would, you know, sort of 
owner managed businesses who've generally been quite strong in this industry. Um, you know, banking will be a bit more difficult, and this is a financing business. You've got to finance massive payrolls. So I, I see opportunities where public companies, once again, and I said this in 2011, 2012, after the, the financial crisis, public companies become very valuable in the supply chain because yep. there's full transparency, there's, there's, there's lots of governance, and you know they are generally well-run, well-financed well businesses. They, get, they have the ups and downs as everybody does, but they are, they are held to a higher standard than the private sector, that the, the, sort of the, the non-listed sector. And, and customers do appreciate that. I can see it. Um, they're worried about their supply chains. Supply chain crisis is going on everywhere. And the last thing they want is a, a large provider of labor not meeting their commitments. Um, so that's been, a, I see that as a great opportunity. And then obviously we mentioned Harvey Nash and sort of the, the organic growth, but also the Bolton acquisitions. Would, would Bolton acquisitions be a strategy for Starfline? Uh, not, in the, not in the short term. Um, Starfline has got so much organic growth. I mean, just our, our, our customers are crying out for, for staff. So basically, if we, had, if we could access more, more candidates, we could grow. We wouldn't mm -hmm. have to buy companies. But where I could see in the future, maybe in a few years, uh, we're growing actively in the Republic of Ireland. We've got some very interesting plans there. Um, and if we were opening offices as we are, and we found a small business that had been got up and running, and the entrepreneur had, had done all the hard work, and it was in a, it it had, it had done the first two years, we, we would consider, and I would call it almost a, it, it is organic growth. It's sort of uh, paying him off for his mm -hmm. his his or her hard work in the beginning um, not quite a, a real business yet but it's a startup that's successfully on the road to growth and we would snap that up and give them a payment which would akin to a sort of goodwill payment but um, I see that as organic growth by the way but you know it, it's officially called a bolt-on acquisition by the accountants and then and then many of your large contracts will have European sites as well I mean is Europe a possibility for expansion Europe, I mean, the, the market is very, very heavily brokered at the moment. Uh, you, you know, it's a mature business, uh, generalist recruitment. So um, you, you, we're not looking outside of our natural um, footprint. There's so much to go for. Of course, we've just won BMW, which is um, a, a German uh, headquartered business. Um, so the Rolls-Royce and Mini Cooper um, variants of their mm -hmm. of their range, their models and their range are are where we're we're helping in the UK. So we 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 we're sort of supporting major companies that are international, but actually labour is local. Yeah. Um. So that's one lesson I've learned about recruitment. It's all local, and therefore my vision is really the UK and Ireland, um, where there's so much opportunity for us to grow, and it's growth where we have a strong brand, where we've got great references. If you want to move into a mature site, like a mature country like the US or any of the countries in Europe or indeed even Asia, one's got to have capital, a lot of capital, and you are you, you're going to have to buy a market leader in those business, in those territories because there's not much room for new startups and new entrants in a, in a very very mature market. No, that makes a lot of sense. So ultimately, there's a lot of organic growth. There's a lot to go for. There's a uh, you know, uh, maybe a move from some mix of ter perm and temp, and ultimately we sit here in a very tight jobs market. So Staffline seems to be in a, a very strong position. 
Yes, and I would say, and I, and I always say this, um, that a, that a job, a labour shortage is never bad for recruitment, right? We always look at the extra jobs we could have filled had we had more candidates. And I was talking to one of my top fee earners yesterday um, who was telling me, oh, well, you know, if only we had a few more candidates and, you know, if we could just find another candidate, we could put another place. And I said, well, that, that's a nice problem to have. You know, that's why you've got pricing power. That's why your customers value you. If there wasn't a demand for jobs uh, and, and, and there wasn't a buoyant market, then we'd be back in the 1990s in the early where I joined the recruitment business when in 93 nobody was hiring. And that's always worse than a, than a labour shortage. No, that makes a lot of sense, Albert. Now, as my regular listeners will know, I like to close with a, a few final questions. And we'll take them sort of one at a time. But I think you maybe alluded to it previously, but your greatest inspiration and mentor... Yeah, so my uncle was, uh, you know, he, he grew up in a, in a sort of uh, in an environment that where he was in an orphanage taken away from his family. And uh, he said to me that if I wanted to go into business, because he had become a very successful um, entrepreneur in the motor and he, he was a representative of Volkswagen in Africa. Um, and he was part of the first uh, fleet leasing arrangements that came into the world at that time in the 70s. So he was part of all of that and he made, um, he, he made a, a great success of it. And so I admired him, um, a very strong-minded, strong-willed character. And he was very intelligent, but he said, Albert, you need training. You need, to, you need the kind of training that a, that, that a chartered accountancy course will provide. And you need that discipline and that rigor. And then when you're in business one day, you'll have an edge and you'll, you'll be able to do what you, you want to. You'll, your dreams will come true for sure. But you'll have an extra insight that possibly you wouldn't if you hadn't done that. And he was absolutely right. No, very insightful. Uh, a book which has inspired you? Well, I wouldn't say that there's a single book. I, mean, I do read these, uh, the, these sort of uh, interviews and people have one book, one individual. Yeah. Um, but I would, you know, I've got many books that, that, that have inspired me. I'm reading Bad People at the moment. Um, uh, about about sort of some of the corruption in the in the in the sort of in the world when it comes to money. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. But my my all time favorite is a book that I keep on my on my bookshelf and I refer to it all the time. I keep it as a handbook, and it's uh, uh, it might not come as a surprise to you. Is Benjamin Graham's Intelligent mm -hmm. Investor? Yeah. It was given to me by uh, by a friend who's an entrepreneur who lives in Ireland now, living out the rest of his life in luxury in, on the west coast of Ireland. And I, I've got him to thank for that and someone who is, who's been an investor his whole life. And I just thought, I devoured the principles. Diff challenging book to read in one sitting. Yeah, but perfect for sure. Perfect book to just refer to. And as I've gone through life and through business, I've tried to apply what I've thought the majority of those wonderful principles are that Benjamin Graham set out in his book, of which, of course, Charlie Munger and then, and then um, uh, Benjamin uh, uh, Warren Buffet have, have followed their whole lives. And I've followed them and I've tried to read their, you know, I follow the whole, the whole buffet, um, uh, buffet movement and uh, I absolutely love his writings. I mean, I could never do write like he could in my, yeah. in my statements. I think I'd be thrown out, but um, wonderful to read those folksy statements with so much wisdom. And it all comes from that book. Um, eventually, originally the intelligent investor. No, absolutely. I mean, Buffett is a phenomenal fan of, of, of Dodds and Graham, obviously. Um, and then finally, I think I may actually have sort of guessed your piece of advice, but what piece of advice would you give to a young person starting their career and follow to follow in your footsteps? 
when I left Harvey Nash in January of 2020 and then COVID hit, I thought I would, you know, to take a bit of time out and think. And my daughter was coming back from Australia, so I made it my mission to try and help her um, in her job search. She'd been in Australia right throughout the first wave of the pandemic and been working. Um, and all of her, and met some of her friends and our acquaintances uh, that we have. They're, they're, and so I've, I've gone through a number of, um, uh, of sessions with, 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 you know, generally early 20-year-olds who've left university. They found the COVID challenges terrible and, and, and really, really bad for their, for their sort of mental health and their job searches and for, and for the way they live their lives. And I've just re-emphasized the, the, some of the things that I've mentioned to you on the podcast this morning, which is, you know, get a, get a good training. It doesn't matter where it is. It needs mm. to be with, a, with an organization where you'll learn rigor, you'll learn hard work, you'll, you'll have role models, you'll have line, line management that you can look up to who know what they're doing. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, life takes care of itself. Um, and, and if you've got a good training and you've got hard work, Always be ready, and this this is this is this is an, a bit of advice. As I've been a headhunter my whole life, this is a bit of advice for everybody: is always be ready for the opportunity because it happens to every individual. Yep. You always get the opportunity; it comes always at a time you least expect. And actually, you can't then. It's a bit like suddenly um, you've been given a fantastic opportunity, but you feel like you'd like to go and do a bit more reading and a bit more development, personal development. It's too late. Um, you've really got to be ready for the opportunity. So I always say train for the next job so that when you're in your current role or, you, or you're doing something and it's a success, you are the obvious standout candidate. And, it's a, and that's happened to me you know, a number of times um, across, across my career is that once you get the rigor, you get the, the discipline and you become the individual, that is the obvious choice for the next job. Then it'll happen. As you, as you highlighted about Harvey Nash. Correct. And, and I think Starfline, you know, when the chairman, uh, you know, when, it, when we were on the board, um, going through those terrible sort of first few months of COVID and dealing with stuff, and I was, you know, I was getting involved and I suddenly found that I loved it again. You know, I wanted to be involved in the operations again. And so, um, you know, he asked me, you know, would I, because we, we had an opening on CEO, so I think it was probably meant to be. <laughs> um, but but you know I couldn't have I couldn't have uh, been happier because the fire was just just was raging to get back in and 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 I love it. You know I, I mean I, I don't think I, I don't know if I was a fantastic NED or if I was an average NED, but I'm I'm sure I'm surely a better CEO. Operational, rolling their that's sleeves me, up. That's me. Yes. How can listeners get in, get in touch? I mean, is the website a good place to start? Yes, of course, we've got a good website, um, starfline.co.uk. And, uh, you know, we've got, we've got various Twitter, Twitter handles. And I, I just want to shout out to Tina McKenzie, Frank um, Atkinson, and, uh, and also Kenny Boyle, my three MDs, th- all the MDs of the three businesses, um, Starfline Island, Starfline in, in, here in the mainland, and also People Plus. So they've all, all got, and they've got lots of things going on on their Twitter feeds, which, which will tell you about the business. And then, of course, um, I've got, you know, at Starfline's CEO. Perfect. And that's your Twitter handle? Yes, that's right. Yes. Perfect. So we'll, we'll see an uptick in followers next week then. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Albert, this has been most enjoyable. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Nick. And indeed, if you'd like to get hold of me, uh, please use live at zeus.co.uk.